Well, as you already knew, and as you can see by the slide on screen, our topic continues to be eternal life. And uh, I will begin, as I have done each lesson, by reading one of, to me, one of the most solid arguments that you can find regarding the fact that eternal life is truly eternal. For the wages of sin is death. That is the one thing that we can earn from the hand of God as far as uh, our standing in salvation, death. But the gift of God, no strings attached, no callbacks, the gift of God is eternal life not a temporary dose of something called life, but eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> We're going to continue uh, looking at some of the passages that can be difficult to, to understand. And I will say that if you read the Bible and study the Bible regularly, you know that even if you are convinced of certain things, you come across certain passages in the scripture that are head scratchers. I, I still believe what I believe, and I know that... What that looks like isn't what it is, but I don't understand it. And so even some who absolutely accept and are convinced by the scripture that the gift of God is irrevocable, that eternal life is by very definition <clears throat> eternal, everlasting, can come across scriptures that just, I, I just don't understand that one. And so uh, that's some of those that we're looking at right now. We have three left, and we'll consider two of those today. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. There we go. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, more than a few have found that verse a little hard to understand. And I, I don't know if you do. Maybe you just say, oh, I get that. But a lot, of, a lot of people just, they look at that, work out your own salvation, then what is that about? For whatever reason, uh, it, it's never been a difficult one for me to grasp, especially when I read what follows. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you. Work out your own salvation, okay? For it's God who, it, it's he that does the work, beginning to end. It's not our obligation to obtain or maintain salvation by our works. Indeed, we're told not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. And so I see God working and that settles it. Uh, just for context, though, and context, as I have pointed out often, is vital in understanding difficult passages. The preceding verses speak about Christ's humility and his obedience to the Father when he took on himself the likeness of man and the form of a servant. Uh, when, you, when you see Jesus walking as a man, he prayed. He asked the Father. He submitted to the Father. In the garden he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. He became entirely a man and partook of our condition in its entirety, except that he did not have that sinful nature. But ultimately, he partook of our sins too when he took him, them on himself. And so when we see that, and, and we see that Paul said, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Christ was obedient, and we are also to be obedient. Uh, and we can see that he's discussing our having an obedience that on some level, you know, well, let me back up a little bit. Did you ever listen to an art critic or an architect or, a, uh, I don't know, a movie reviewer, and they come up with all of these really weird, well, you can see a parallel here with this, and this, this speaks to the obscurantism of, and you say, what in the world? Uh, I had an English teacher back when I was in college, and she told about the master's thesis that she wrote about a, a classical poet, and she brought out all the, uh, the points that she made, and she said, now, that poor man didn't mean any of those things when he wrote his poems, but I had a master's thesis to write. Well, when you come to the scripture, we're looking at something written by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when we see certain things that connect, we're intended to make the connection. When we see things that parallel, we're intended to see that, yes, there's some kind of a balance I need to reach between these two things. And so in close conjunction, we see Christ becoming obedient unto death to win our salvation. And then we see Paul enjoining the Philippian believers to obedience. And so there is to be an obedience in our lives that is akin to that of Christ to the Father. And if we follow it a little further, that same parallel, when Christ became obedient to death on the cross, what was it about? It was about obtaining our salvation. When Paul called on us to be obedient, uh, there in Philippians 2.12, he goes on and says, work out your own salvation. So I will just sort of do a quick shortcut. Our obedience is to manifest that salvation that Christ's obedience accomplished on our behalf. But uh, there is a how issue in the things of God sometimes. Okay, work out your own salvation. How am I supposed to do that? What does it mean for us to work out our own salvation? An illustration I've used in the past, and some of you might remember it because I used it more than once as I do my illustrations, uh, was the comparison with a math book that I had. I think it was in college. It's been a long time since this old man was in school. It seemed like it was a college math book. And if you went to the back of the book, the answers were all there in the book. But, of course, when you turned in your homework, you couldn't just write down the answers. You had to show the work. Now, what was that about? It was about the fact we don't care if you know the answer in advance. Jesus is the answer, true? Salvation has already been accomplished for us, yes? But then he says, the, the college teacher, college professor says, now I want you to work these problems out and I want you to show that you understand how the answer was arrived out at. Show your understanding. Show your grasp of the subject matter. And in a very real sense, that's what it means to work out our own salvation. We, as we live out our salvation, uh, we are manifesting our grasp of the subject matter. But maybe a better approach, maybe not. A couple of scriptures that use this same Greek word that is translated work out, uh, because 
context, also vocabulary. If you're really going to study the Bible, either get a good Strong's Concordance or a Bible app that will give you that kind of information and see what you can find about word meanings and word usage. In Romans 7.18, again, the, the two words work out. It's a single word in the Greek. Romans 7.18, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. But how to perform, and that's the Greek word there, how to perform, how to work, how to accomplish, how to perform what is good, I do not find. And so it's just talking about doing. Now, in this case, Paul has said, is saying that at that stage in his spiritual development, he didn't know how to really do what God wanted him to do. There was, we'll get into the two creations later, but um, there was a struggle between his flesh and his spirit, and his understanding was not complete, and he wasn't able really to work out all that he needed to accomplish. How to perform what is good, I do not find. Also in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, there's our Greek word, having done the work involved in the battle, having done all to stand. Uh, what we don't see in those two verses is some kind of problem solving. Uh, in fact, in Romans 7.18, Paul had not solved the problem. He's just talking about, I need to do certain things, and I don't know how to accomplish them. Uh, in Ephesians 6.13, we clearly see it's talking about what it means to know how to do, to do the will of God, and still to remain standing. I will say that as I get older and I get tired, do you ever feel like maybe it's on the job or maybe it's school or whatever you ever just feel like quitting because you just it's just you get old and you just feel like quitting <laughs> amen <laughs> well but we don't want to do that we want to do the will of God and then when it's all done we still want to be standing so you can do and do and do and still come to a point where you just sort of give up spiritually and you decide, I'm going to coast downhill. Well, you don't coast downhill spiritually. You come to a dead spot, stop, and then you start going in reverse. So, well, that was all extra. Uh, what, what we see is just doing things in connection with the fact that we are saved. Now, the Greek word that is used there can have many shades of meaning, and I'm not going to get into that. And I will give you a caution, by the way, if you do look up the meaning of words when it gives 17 different meanings for a word, context, intention. You know, you can't take, my father spoke of a preacher who was a very devoted and godly man, but he would take a word from, from the Greek that was found in a text and he would try to apply every single meaning or every shade of meaning of that word to that text and it, it, it didn't really work that well. So, Lots of shades of meaning. So the intention of the, the speaker or the writer can have a lot to do with what we take out of that word. In our text, again, is simply talking about an outworking or an outward manifestation of the inward work of salvation that was purchased for us by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have a lot going on in your heart and in your mind. <clears throat> I remember when I was a kid at the camp meeting in Topeka, 
a, a kid that was older than I was, he was in his teens, but he gave me a quarter to go ask a girl if she'd sit with him in church. So he had something going on in his heart. <laughs> but he couldn't bring himself to let out there and he really expressed directly what was in his heart. Again, maybe not a great illustration, but God has saved you. He planted a new life in you by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he wants that to be manifested. He wants you to have the courage not to pay somebody a quarter to manifest it for you. I, I've heard how it's the preacher's responsibility to lead people to the Lord and other things. Well, yeah, there's something in your heart that God wants to be manifested. And uh, we know from other statements of Paul, and if you have been well taught, never, never mind this series of lessons, but even with this series of lessons, if you've listened to the word of God, one of the things that you know absolutely about that instruction, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know that the meaning cannot, absolutely cannot be rightly interpreted as meaning we're somehow to accomplish our salvation or to do works that would somehow secure our salvation as if it were not already secured. And then again, you add to those words from Philippians 2.13, uh, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And we can readily see the instruction here doesn't have anything to do with what arises from us. It's the work of God continuing in our lives, continuing to be manifested, uh, an outward manifesting of God's work in, word in us. Jesus finished the real work at the cross. He said that he did. It is finished. And so the idea that uh, if we don't work out our salvation for ourselves, uh, we don't have or somehow we will somehow lose eternal life, it just won't stand up. Let's move on to another passage. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, kind of a big chunk of scripture. Hebrews 3, beginning with verse 7, Therefore... As the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And we're going to be seeing the context here. The hardening of the heart, not a good thing. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers, remember this is the book of Hebrews, writing to the Hebrews, writing to the Jews, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Remember, he showed his works to the children of Israel and his ways to Moses. That's two different issues. They saw a lot that God worked, but they never got the depth of his spiritual purposes. Uh, so I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Beware lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. So let's just pause here. They disobeyed, they were unbelieving, and they refused ultimately. I mean, they, they were disobeying from the time they, they left Egypt till they got to the borders of the promised land. They got there and they refused to go in and take the land. And so he said, all right, 
that's your decision. I accept your decision. You won't enter into my rest. And so he said, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. And he's talking to brethren, saved people. An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, departing from fellowship. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through deceitfulness of sin. And here's, here's the, the big verse that people have trouble with. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, do you see why some would really stumble over that? I do. I don't stumble, but I see it. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, it was not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses. Not everybody. Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? He did not withdraw life from them. He allowed them to live out their full lifespan. God does not withdraw eternal life from us. Uh, but they perished in the wilderness because they chose not to enter the promised land because of unbelief. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter, into, or enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? We see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now again, we are already... If we've listened to the word of God, we're already on the very, very solid ground of having compared scripture with scripture, digging into the context of various passages and knowing with a full assurance that the gift of God is irrevocable, that eternal life, eternal salvation, everlasting righteousness, eternal redemption, those things cannot come to an end. If they could, then the word of God is wrong because the word of God calls them eternal. So we're on some pretty solid ground about that issue, or, or we should be. That gift of eternal life will not perish, pass away, or be taken back. Now let's start with, <clears throat> excuse me, let's start considering with the context. Again, the context is Israel's unbelieving disobedience. And... Uh, God's resulting declaration that the generation who refused to enter the land now could not enter the land. If you remember the story, they went up and uh, refused to go in, and God said, all right, then, if you won't. Oh, okay, we've changed our minds, we'll go in, but God had already said, you made a final decision, and they were not successful. Uh, there's no suggestion whatsoever that all of those who died in the wilderness were unsaved. Now, it was a mixed multitude. It was a lot of people. People have speculated on the numbers into the millions. I don't know how many people were led out, really. We can, we can find a numbering of the men of war at a certain point, but uh, be that as it may, it, it wasn't an issue that they're all unsaved. Uh, Moses also didn't get to go into the land. Why? Because he disobeyed God. Why didn't the others get to go into the land? Because they disobeyed God. He was godly. Now, his disobedience was in no way on the same scale as that of the congregation of Israel as a whole. 
But he stood in a large place unto whom much is given, much will be required. And God said, you won't go in. I think of Miriam, a prophetess, Moses' sister, a godly woman. She had human frailties. She had human failures. But she was godly nonetheless. Nevertheless, she didn't enter in. So we're not talking in the picture that's presented, the comparison that's presented. We're not talking about all these people, they lost their salvation or they never had it or something. It's not the case. Disobedience and then not getting to enter into the fullness of God's promise. And that's really what it's about. Unbelief, failing to take hold of what God offers, and if we fail to take hold, uh, there's a missing out on great blessing. Uh, And as I hope you know, well, I'll just ask the question, Do no, no need to raise your hand. Are you aware of the fact that God has offered so much more to us than just that initial entering in by faith into the life of Christ and spiritual things and thereby gaining an assurance of a place in heaven with him? I hope you know that there is so much more to be possessed. Uh, had a sermon the other night, add to your faith. Yeah, it's a good thing to start out. That's how you start by faith, but add all of these things to your faith. Uh, we're offered the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not all receive it. Uh, there are rewards that offered that not all receive, but we are offered a rest and a fullness of blessing even as, although better, even as Israel was offered if we are willing to enter in by faith. You know, people through the years have totally misinterpreted the imagery of the promised land and Israel's ultimate crossing over Jordan. Uh, Change of topic, but not really. Choir teachers have favorite songs. And I attended South High School in Denver, Colorado, sometimes, if I didn't feel like doing something else. And the choir teacher had a favorite song, and the river Jordan is chilly and cold. It chills the body, but not the soul. All my trials, Lord, soon be over. And the song goes on, but that's just so wrong on so many levels. (laughs) That's not the picture. They didn't go into the promised land. And there is a spiritual picture there. There's a spiritual imagery for us. And it's been pictured, and I understand the background of that song. That's a traditional song that was sung by slaves. And life was hard and life was wearisome. And they looked forward to a time of rest, naturally speaking. And there's not a thing wrong with understanding that when we cross into the next life, the body is chilled in the cold arms of death, but not the spirit, not the soul, that our trials will be over. That's good to know. But it doesn't fit in with the image of going over Jordan and into the promised land. They crossed over into the promised land and they thought they had problems in the wilderness. And then the wars began, right? Then the battles began because God promised it to them. He said, I'll drive them out before you. Every place the sole of your foot shall tread, I'm going to give to you. But you have to go in and fight the battles. And so crossing over Jordan is a decision. Uh, I'm going to quit wandering around in the wilderness. You know, have, have you ever thought, 
I know I've brought it out at times, but have you ever thought about what good care God took of that rebellious generation as they went through the wilderness? Their feet didn't swell. I, I guess that means they didn't have to buy new shoes, which was a good thing because there were no shoe stores. Their clothes didn't get old. Also a good thing. He fed them with the manna and more at times. He gave them water out of the rock. He led them by the pillar of cloud and fire. God took absolute care of those people. During the 40 years, they were wandering around in the wilderness accomplishing absolutely nothing. Nothing for themselves, nothing for others, nothing for their children, doing nothing, just marking time, eating what God gave, following to some degree where God led, enjoying his protection and provision, but spiritually going nowhere. And so we're called upon to come out of a wilderness of wandering through life without purpose. And we can do that, and God will take care of us, and God will even bless us and help us and give us some direction. And yet, if we're not entering into the purposes God has for us, we're missing the whole point, and we're accomplishing nothing. It's a matter of going in and fighting the battles. It's a matter of engaging the enemy. It's a matter of standing fast for the truth. Well, I could go on with that, but you know as well as I do, not all lay hold by faith, not all take hold of his promises, not all enter into the battle and become fully victorious. That doesn't mean they're not saved. It means they do not fully trust God's promises. Why would I choose to ignore what God says, this is best for you, and choose something else? Because I don't believe him. I want this. I want to do something else. There were several years of my life that I sinned willfully as constantly as I could with my favorite sins because I wanted them more than I wanted the will of God. That's stupid. But we don't believe God if we take that kind of a path. They don't fully trust God's promise to give victory, don't fully see the value of what he's promised. And so hold that thought. That's what Israel was doing. That's what people do today. Don't walk away from that context. But we come now to Hebrews 3.14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now again, that could be scary if uh, you didn't really believe and have a foundation for your belief that eternal life is eternal. Let me, uh, let me give you a couple of verses that use that word translated partakers. Luke 5.7 so they signaled their partners, this is the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, catching some major numbers of fish as the Lord directed them. They signaled to their partners, and that's that word translated partaker, the partner partakes in the sharing. Here's a group of men, they're all fishermen, some days this guy will have no catch, some days this guy will have a great catch, let's just split the difference. So they were partakers together. Uh, they called their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. So partners who came and shared the overabundance of God's blessing that the Lord had directed them to. Hebrews 1.9, this is quoted from Psalm 45. You have loved, speaking of Christ, prophecy in Psalm 45, fulfilled now. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, 
has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, more than those who are partakers with you. Were those who followed him in his earthly walk, were they partakers with him? In a very real sense, absolutely. Was he anointed with the oil of gladness, with the Holy Spirit more than they were? Oh, absolutely. He was the anointed one, the Christ, anointed prophet, priest, and king on our behalf. So the picture is of our having an opportunity to become full partakers, partners, companions with him if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Again, you don't want to just say, I'm going to coast now. You don't want to stop. It's a race. It's not a sprint. If, if I ever enter a marathon, and I don't think you need to even give that a second thought, but I'm going to be walking most of the way. And in theory, I won't be finished in time to be qualified on the list, but if I finish that 26 miles, it'll mostly be at a walk, won't it? But I can finish it if I keep walking. So holding our confidence that God can work in us steadfast and accomplish his purpose, hold that confidence steadfast to the end. I think, of course, of Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit itself, and I'm quoting this from the King James Version. It's a little more literate than, uh, literal than the New King James. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Established fact. And if children, and we are, then heirs. Heirs of God. But then there's more. And joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him. Some people just don't endure under difficulties of life. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Together with him. Join heirs with him. Full partakers with him. If we hold our confidence steadfast to the end. And so you can dismiss any false notions that arise if we pay attention to and keep in mind the context, and the wording, and understand the promises of God, and understand that to partake in the fullness of those promises, we must stand fast in the things of God, holding the fullness of faith steadfast to the end. I'm finished a little early, and I knew I would be, so I'm going to tell you a passage we're going to be looking at next week. It'll be the last. I don't have it up there on screen, I don't think, or do I? I do. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Kind of another scary passage if you don't grasp the reality of eternal life. So we will finish that next week, and then we'll be going into the two natures, the uh, two creations, the old man and the new man, and that's all a single discussion, single topic, if you're aware of it. And uh, it's something, if you don't understand the two creations, you can have a lot of verses to go with the teaching about eternal life, but if you don't have a grasp of the two creations, you don't really have the foundation you need. Tell you a little story and then I'll shut up. I was talking to an old friend of mine, Brother Bill Wrench. Uh, by the way, I might pray for him if you think about it. He told me, he said, Brother Franklin, I am blind in one eye. He said, I can see a little bit out of the other, but I'm legally blind in that one. He's about 80 now. 
Be that as it may, I mentioned what I was teaching on. He said, oh, Brother Franklin, you, you, you taught me that when we were together down in Georgia. And uh, then I said I was going to go on to the two creations. First, I told him about eternal life. Told about the two, two creations, and he said, oh, Brother Franklin, you taught me that too. And he said, absolutely, you can't understand eternal life if you don't see the two creations. So that will be the, uh, the things that we will continue with to the completion of this series.